If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Daniel Boone. He'll be answering our call in 1805 at the age of 71. If you've seen old TV shows or read books from his time, you'd think that Daniel Boone was the roughest, toughest, fightingest man the wild frontier had ever known. He's portrayed as wearing a coonskin cap, swinging from vines to escape Indians, of which that story may have inspired the story of Tarzan, and was said to have fought bears. Yet, Despite the writers of his time embellishing his many accomplishments, the foundations of those stories that created his legend were not without merit. For example, his daughter was captured by the Native Americans. Boone tracked them for two days by following broken branches and scraps of clothing that she had left behind as clues. After finding his daughter tied to a tree and guarded by her captors, he waited until nighttime, took care of business, as he says, and then brought her home safely. The stories of this expedition made Boone a celebrity in his time and later inspired the movie Last of the Mohicans. When the land west of the 13 colonies was wild and controlled by Indian tribes and forbidden by British law to colonize, Boone thought, yeah, whatever, and created a path that weaved through the mountains to a place where no white man had ever traveled and survived. That's what led him to Kentucky that was a paradise for hunters like Boone. Was he going to leave this beautiful place, even though it was not his? No, not so much. Instead, he built a settlement called Boonesboro. Over the next few years, more than 200,000 settlers followed that exact path. When the American Revolution started, the British were paying Native Americans to kill settlers and destroy their camps on the Western Front. Yet, Boonesboro and the other settlements held the line and prevented the English from attacking the colonies on both sides. At one point, Boone and a few dozen men, women, and children fought off 400 angry Shawnee warriors for 10 days until the Shawnee gave up the siege and, well, they went home. Despite his ability to lead and his desire to adventure, Daniel Boone was a simple man who believed that all a person needed to be happy was a good rifle, a fast horse, and a woman that he loved. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and eaters of buffalo tongue everywhere, I give you Daniel Boone! Hello, is that you, Colonel Boone? It is, sir. Sir, I am thrilled to speak with you today. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting on a log next to a campfire after a long hunt. And it also allows me to share a recording of this conversation with people around the world. And there are so many stories and so many unbelievable tales about you. People want to know who you are. And I was hoping I could ask you some questions today, but before I do... I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? I don't think so. I feel quite comfortable this morning. You caught me at a good time. I'm actually sort of excited to speak with you. Well, I appreciate that. And hopefully, uh, before I have some questions, I want to ask you about so many different things. 
But I'd like to dispel a couple myths that I heard about you because in our time, sir, <laughs> like you are larger than life in our time. Like I heard, first of all, I heard that you wear a coonskin cap, which I don't think is true. But I've heard that you swing from vines escaping Indians. I heard that you fought a bear one time. Are any of these things true? Can you clear some of this up for me? You know, I think I refer to those type of stories as, if you will, Mr. Dean, a campfire story, maybe an exaggeration sitting around the front of the cabin this morning. I find a lot of those stories that are told are just so exaggerated. I'm just a common man, Mr. Dean. My needs and the basics of my life are very simple. And for some reason, people feel compelled to exaggerate stories, if you will, of my hunting expeditions. Mr. Dean, my life has been, my footsteps have been often marked in blood. The sacrifices of what I've been through are horrendous. Two darling children I've lost to the hands of savages in the pursuit to find this land that we call Kentucky in a place to call home and the freedom to worship and serve my God the way I understand him. And this mystical man that they want to create me to be uh, fighting bears and wearing a coonskin hat. You know, the natives in this area of Kentucky wear a lot of dead animals wrapped around their head during the winter months. And I always found that appalling. That hide serves me a, a lot more better purposes than, if you will, to wrap around my head. And so I just don't find it necessary, if you will, Mr. Dean, to put a, a tanned cane wrapped around my head. So that is definitely not true, that part? No, sir. No, All sir, right. not, not in the least. And do you swing from vines? No, I don't know where that comes from. The only thing I, a good for a, a vine from a tree is to wrap to uh, keep things secured to my pack horse if I'm not able to get a buffalo tie of... Uh, a green hide that, if you will, that's versatile enough to, to tie on meat and things that would become necessary to pack through the woods with me. Over the years, there have been people that have written about your life, and I wonder if maybe some of these stories have been embellished in an attempt to sell books. But I, I appreciate you clearing that up right away. A minute ago, you just said that this journey of your life has been marked in blood. And when I think of that, I think of these two sons of yours that that were killed by Indians. Could you expand on that a little bit? Well, I mean, the short of, of all that is, is this, Mr. Dean. When my father, Squire, and my mother, we, when, we, when I was born up in Pennsylvania, Dad had been brought in before the faith, if you will, the Quaker. You know, that was our, my upbringing and my earliest years that I can remember up to about 14 years old. We, Dad had brought in, was brought in before the meeting house, and I guess the word I'd be looking for is he was, he was somewhat reprimanded, and he ended up being excommunicated because two of the girls in the family had dated outside the Quaker faith, and I remember Dad saying that the neighborhood had got somewhat crowded, and it was time for us to move on, and he had gave a lot of serious thought about the Yakin Valley of North Carolina and this wilderness of, of a bounty of game, if you will, that he wanted to go to. And so from my adolescence, Mr. Dean, I remember coming into the Yakin Valley. This was before my eyes had to hold the beauty and the wonders of Kentucky. 
And I would later in life would marry my beloved, the love of my wife, Rebecca. We would end up having a total of 10 children. And James, at the time of his death, uh, to answer your question, I was sort of leading up to that, if you will. He was 16 years old, and my son Israel was 24 years old. So one of my first trips into Kentucky, if you really want to know the specifics of it, I, I think I can share somewhat with that with you. James was 16 years old, and we had reached the outskirts of Kentucky, and uh, my son was no more than two to three days behind me, James, and i become real concerned about that, Mr. Dean, and I was restless all night and, and had thought on this that because you understand that this was the, the warrior's path. This was the dark and bloody ground of Kentucky. This is where no white man had ever entered into. And now, when I say no white man had entered into, there was those that came before me. One notable figure was Dr. Thomas Walker had ventured into Kentucky many years before I did. And so James had, should have caught up with us, but that next morning, I sent a dispatch of two mounted dragoons militia men back to where we had come from. And I didn't hear from them for maybe a day or so. And the next morning, a dispatch arrived back that, um, I'm sorry, this is somewhat difficult for me to share with you, but no, I want to do, I want to dispel the facts and myths of my life. And uh, the sacrifices, what we've been through, and now that I'm here with my son out in Missouri, my heart's scarred, if you will, from this moment. It changed my life forever this morning because my son was found dead. He was on the trail, and he had been savagely attacked by a small war party. And there was three other men with him, and all three of them had been killed. And... For the sake of just the other people that were with James, I'll just talk about my son. He had been, he was mutilated. He had been decapitated. His body was quartered out and his limbs were hung from the tree and all of his accoutrements were taken, his knife, his tomahawk, his horses, what supplies he was carrying, his rifles, his sword. So I, I'm sorry, I haven't talked about this for some time. I was able to, to spend that day with him and the man, we dug graves, and I told the other man to go back and that I would catch up with him the next day further on down the trail. And, you know, I, I became so concerned about and so grief-stricken and what had happened. I was angry. I was bewildered. I just could not bring myself to send a message back to his mother and his cousins and his siblings and that he had been killed, but I just became so concerned that the wolf and the beast of the field would dig him back up that I, I dug him back up and I uh, dug the hole deeper and I reburied him. And I stayed with him for two days, Mr. Dean. And so that's my son James and his death. And, and James was your first son, wasn't he? He was, yeah. Oh, I can't even imagine that. I mean, that's just... Why would they quarter him? And I'm assuming... That when you quarter a person, you mean they're just cutting his body into pieces, is what I think. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was. He was mutilated. He was no different than a man would kill a buffalo or a bear or a deer, and to quarter him out, you know, to take 
claims. And Why would they mutilate him in this way? I mean, did they have something against you, or was it just something Well, against... you have to understand, this is the warrior's path, and very few Europeans or white men had ventured into this wilderness. This was the western frontier then. I had, from a very young age, Mr. Dean had become a market hunter. We would kill 25, 30 deer a day, depending on the season. The deer's hide was worth one buck. It's a term that we use in this time frame that one dollar of American U.S. currency, if you will, was worth one one buck, one dollar. And we would kill 25 to 30 deer a day, and we would use everything about that deer. We would eat the bone marrow, we'd eat the tongue, we'd eat the liver. We'd eat all the meat. We would skin the hides and tan them and brain tan them. And I've always reflected that as we market hunted, that this became disturbing to them because we were market hunters. And they claimed this land, and they didn't take kindly us being there. So that's my theory. And it was apparent that their carelessness and their heartlessness of what they've done, that my heart's angry. My heart sometimes explodes, especially me trying to articulate what I went through for James. I'll tell you briefly, if I can, about Israel. Before you tell me about Israel, I want to ask you a few things about what you've just said, if that's okay. You were saying that you, this is one thing that surprised me. When you say you were market hunting and you were looking to get these skins so that you could sell them for a buck each, and I'm surprised to hear you say that all the meat was used and all the bone marrow was used and everything was used. I mean, this sounds like when we think of the natives, this is what we think of them using every piece of the animal. Well, if you were to hunt 25 animals in one day, that's a lot of meat to transport. And I'm guessing that you're not hunting with that many people. How do you use all that meat? Where does it go? Well, I think that's a wonderful question that you, that intrigues you. And that's sort of the basis of why I was where I was at when Israel was killed. And I can explain that to you. So as you venture into the wilderness of Kentucky, what we call the lower blue licks, there's a large concentration of cane fields and water real rich with salt. And we would travel into the blue licks from where I would later establish our fort at Fort Moonsboro. And we would spend many days there and hundreds of gallons of water for, to render a bushel of salt, if you will. Because especially this time of year here, as you're aware, fall's coming, winter's coming. And to keep that much meat cured to survive the winter month, we would render salt by boiling this water into the Blue Licks where my son Israel, my second son that was killed in a battle there with me, we were up there probably two times a year through the season to boil this water to render salt to cure all this meat that we had. You have to understand, Mr. Dean, we were established in a community here at Boonesboro, and it did become necessary to feed a lot of people because they had women and they had children. And so we would create these areas where we would slaughter a cow if we were fortunate enough to have one that had come to the settlement, a deer, a buffalo, a bear, that we would cut this meat up and we would salt it down and it would uh, keep it from going rancid 
and uh, spoiling, that we'd have plenty of fresh meat through the winter, the fall, late fall, and the, the harsh winters that we've endured here. I see. Um, that makes sense. So you're keeping all this meat to feed all of Boone. Yes. Okay. Yes. And me being a market hunter, that the man that hunted with me, that become a necessity for us to to cure a lot of this meat, and then we would flesh out the hides, and we would make leather clothing and leggings and a shirt and a honey frock and things to keep us from the bite of the winter wind. And so so that sort of leads me up to Israel, and we weren't necessarily on a salt-curing expedition to acquire salt, but I was with several ranking officers in the Kentucky militia, and we were in the Blue Licks area. And we had come down the Licken River, and Israel was with me that day, and he was on a horse. And we we were coming down the Licken River, and there was a colonel in the Kentucky militia named Trigg, and we had gone into a wide bend of this river, and the sand, it was sandy. And I noticed increasingly that I was watching moccasin footsteps out in front of me. And the footprints were deep. Mr. Dean, and I'd seen this before in this area that now what I didn't know is that there was a pretty large concentration of the war party of Shawnee in this area, which caught me by surprise. But I told Colonel Trigg and the other men that were there, and I was on a horse, my son was on a horse, that we needed to stay clear of this area because the footsteps were deep, if you will, as far up to uh, my knees. Uh, just to give you a visual of how deep they were because the sand was real soft. And um, I'd seen this before in my my travels that um, these, these Shawnee were out in front of me and they were walking footstep to footstep. So I couldn't tell how many of them there were. And I, I told several of the ranking officers of the Kentucky militia that we would be well to back out of there. Well, Colonel Trigg called me a coward and said that I'd, become somewhat soft and I took great offense to that and I'm not going to tell you that I didn't because I did and we went maybe another hundred steps down around the bend of the river after I'd warned them that we should back out and I looked up on the hillside and I could see I'm going to guess dozens maybe several dozen of natives they were lounging in the shade it was warm that day and they were smoking pipes, and but I recognized their black and their red war paint. And now I knew what that black and red war paint meant. It meant death. And does that mean it's a I war told party? My, it is a war party. Okay, and Mr. Dean. What I didn't know that day is that the war chief of the Shawnee Nation was Chief Cornstock, and he had been over at Point Pleasant sometime earlier and was on a peaceful mission with his two children at Point Pleasant. And some drunk soldiers had attacked Chief Cornstock's two sons and had murdered them. And so this war party had assembled up north in what we call the Ohio Valley and was marching on uh, this area. And now at this point, Mr. Dean, I don't understand or I have no family ideal that they're, they're starting a war party to come down into the Kentucky area and that they're going to get revenge and they're going to attack our settlements in this region now that we now call Kentucky. So Israel's standing next to me and I tell him to stay close to me and I've got a, a Fowler rifle with me and I've got 
he's got a rifle and I've got a short sword and a tomahawk. And I tell Israel to stay close to me. And we start up the side of that hill and all hell comes loose. And they start shooting and, and, I, and we're caught in a fishbowl. They're shooting down at us and I turn around and Israel's been shot literally in the neck between his lower jaw and the top of his neck. And he dies almost instantly there. And I'll tell you the truth, Mr. Dean, he's, he's so mortally wounded and the hell of gunfire is all over me and I can't even drag his body off. And it would end up being two days before I get back to the Blue Licks and this massacre. Most of the militias murdered and killed that day. And Mr. Dean, if you studied this out any at all, that the downfall of it is that we don't know if any of these deaths were avenged, if you will, at all, because the way of the natives are, they carry off their dead. So when we got back three days later, there were so many vultures in the sky that morning that it blocked out the morning sun. Um, and the only way I reckon my son had laid there, this was the month of August, and the heat was uh, scorching. And my son, Israel, was so mangled and uh, from the heat and the vultures, I couldn't even identify him other than the linen hunting shirt that his mama, Rebecca, had made for him. And I made a gurney, and I carried my second child, Israel, at the age of 24 years old back to not Boonesboro, mind you, because at this time I'm, I've, I've left Boonesboro and I've built a half-day shelter across the Kentucky River when I wintered out that winter. Matter of fact, I left Christmas Day that year, walked across the frozen Kentucky River, and this was sometime after that, and that's where I established my home and wandered in the wilderness and had a lot of business ventures. Nobody should have to go through this. I mean, it's one thing to have your kids pass along for some reason, but... I mean, both of your children, the last thing you, of your first boys is you saw them mutilated, whether it was by vultures or yeah. whether it was by the natives, and that is just, that is horrific. Now you understand the seriousness and the vast magnitude of my life and what I've sacrificed to make this land uh, to be free. When you were talking about you were seeing the footsteps, you were saying that they were really deep. And I don't understand why they were deep. Were they deep because they were walking in in a line so that you couldn't tell how many there were? Or were they deep because it was that's, mud? That's exactly what they were doing. It was a marshy area, and it was sandy. And you take 50 men walking out in front of us in the same mud hole in moccasins, they're going to push the mud down, and it's going to fill with water. And that I've seen this before. And when I've been with a small hunting party before, I've always known to back out of that because there's way too many more out there in front of us, more than we can handle. And so to my best judgment, Mr. Dean, instead of backing out after being called a coward, I was challenged to move forward that morning and I would end up losing my child, my second son, to the hands of savages. I don't and, understand uh, how anybody calls you a coward. I, I don't understand that at all. It seems that when Kentucky was just this this land that, as you're saying, no white man had ever made it to, and the natives are surviving out there. I mean, you're the one that cuts through that area and makes the path that other people follow. And I'm guessing, as you're talking about this warrior path, and I don't know if that's the same path that you made to go into Kentucky, but like this is super dangerous work, isn't it? It is. But, you know, I live in peace now, Mr. Dean. And I've had a wonderful life. 
I was trying to think. We don't necessarily celebrate birthdays, but I must be. And Rebecca's over there in the corn crib right now, but I'll ask her. I, I reckon I'm 71 years old now. You don't and, celebrate uh, birthdays? Well, not. I choose not to. It, I'm always have to be reminded that today was the day I was born. And I think last year, Rebecca, you know how I've always been fed to be fond of a buffalo tongue. She had fried a, a tongue of a buffalo and for my birthday last year. And we feasted on that and squash and yams, sweet potato, if you will, and potatoes. And that was the celebration for my birth. But I do that for all my kids and my wife and family. We're simple people, Mr. Dean. And I don't know if that interests a lot of people or not. Well, I'll tell you what. If you were to read some of the books that have been written about you, and you keep mentioning that you are a simple person, you don't need a lot of things in life to be happy. If you read the books that are written about you, I think that you would wonder who they were talking about. Well, you know, I've always said in life, Mr. Dean, there's three things that a man needs. And that's a good horse, a fine rifle, and a, and a caring, loving wife. And I've had all three of those things in my life, and I figure that's all I need to be happy with. And an occasional buffalo tongue. And I do prefer buffalo tongue. I, it's, it's something I, I cherish. I don't eat it often, but I enjoy a skillet-fried buffalo tongue on the open fire. Let's talk about Boonesboro. So you'd mentioned this a few minutes ago, and... I think there's a lot of people that won't know right away what Boonesboro is. Could you explain what that was? Well, we established this fort here on the western frontier, and we built a borough, fortified fortress, if you will, made out of timber and cabins. And we established this as a place of refuge and protection from the attacks of Indians. And we raised corn here, and it's right on the Kentucky River, and it's been a wonderful place. But I don't know if you want to talk about it later on here or now, but, you know, the same place where my son Israel, his life was taken, I would end up being captured by the Shawnee up at the Blue Licks. And subsequently, later on, the events that would happen after being captured and my escape and traversing back to Fort Boonesboro, my home, would end up having, well, my court-martial, and that's something I'll talk about, too, that in that sequence that ended up making the decision that I left Boonesboro. Let's come back to that in just a minute. I, I, I want to specifically know, what is Boonesboro? So my picture of this is that you basically cut this path through Kentucky, and then you just pick a spot of ground and clear it and just make a fort with timbers and decide you're going to live there? I mean, is that what it is? That's what it is. That's exactly what it is. And how many people were living uh, it, in Boonesboro? Well, off and on, many dozen would eventually occupy this. It would become the hub of the western frontier of civilization. And people were free to come and go as they pleased. You know, eventually the Indian attacks would settle down, and it was the women and the children that they donned the long hunter hat that we all wear and, and long hunter hunting shirts. And when the attack of that fort happened on the Palisades, the walls of the fort, that they saw that there was many of us there, but actually a lot of them were women and children that walked the top of the Palisades that 
appeared that there was a whole lot more of us living there than they they suspected. And that was after my escape, you know. So it was it was a barrage of gunfire. For, I reckon that happened from about September the 7th to about the 18th that they attacked that fort. And we didn't lose a single soul there. A lot of men were injured. A lot of people were shot. But we held our own, and we sustained the livability of that fort by just standing our ground during all those days of attack of the siege of this fort. Now, I think the siege that you're talking about is the one by Blackfish. Is that right? It is. We talked about earlier about the death of the war chief, Chief Cornstalk of the Shawnee Nation, Blackfish, and it's pronounced Shungoa. And Blackfish would end up becoming the chief of the Shawnee Nation. And they stayed primarily up in the northern part of the Ojai Valley across the Ojai River, if you will. So Blackfish um, replaced Chief Cornstalk, is that correct? He did. He did. Okay. What kind of man was he? Well, I guess that would lead us into me living with him and being adopted by him. And I knew you were going to eventually want to talk about that, so I'll go ahead and bring that up. But uh, I had gone back up to, it was cold, it was the winter months. It was the month of February that year. And I had gone to the Blue Licks with some dozen or more maybe 20, 22 men to the Blue Licks, and we we were rendering salt and boiling hundreds of gallons of water of the salty springs to to render, that we talked about, to render our meat to be cured. When you say you're boiling water to get the salt, I mean, is it really this simple? You just You find a place where there's a lot of salt in the water, and you're just sitting there for days and days just boiling water so that you can get the salt out of it, so you can come back with these bags of salt. Is it that simple? That's correct, but it's not that simple. A lot of wood's got to be burned, and then to get a bushel of salt, you would, after all the water's burned out, you would scrape the sides of the kittles to get a bushel of salt, and then that's correct, and we'd bring this salt back to cure this meat that we've talked about earlier. So uh, there was a lot of grumbling in the camp over the first day or two as we were setting up these kittles to pull this water to get salt, and it had become necessary for me to go bring some game in to feed these men as they labored bowling and cutting wood and um, I had gone about a mile up the Blue Licks where I knew a big deep cane field was that the buffalo roamed by the hundreds and uh, I had shot a small buffalo and spent the better part of the day skinning out this buffalo and I had a pack horse with me and I reckon I had probably 200 pounds of meat on each side of this pack horse. And I looked out of the corner of my eye and saw four young warriors in the war paint. And they were coming up on me quick. And my first instinct was to cut that meat off the side of the horse and mount that pack horse and take off riding. But I'll tell you the truth, Mr. Dean, what had happened, it had got so cold that day that my hands were covered in blood and grease from skinning this buffalo out all afternoon to bring that meat back to the men. And so when I reached in my night sheath, my hands become had become so bitterly cold and were so covered with grease and blood, I couldn't draw my knife to cut this buffalo off the side of my horse. So I grabbed my rifle and took off at a run through the woods and the first shot rang out and shot my powder horn loose from my hip. And close. so I, I, leaned, 
Yeah, it was close. And I leaned up against the tree in a form of submission. And I look back at that time that what broken English I understood. And it amazed me that this one warrior says to me, howdy do, Colonel Boone. He knows who I am. And he, he takes my hat off of my head and they torment me and they tie my hands up and they take both my horses and they drop all the fresh meat and cut it loose. And they take me back to, to the camp with the other man. And I told the man to hold their peace because there was just a couple of them. But when I got back to the camp, there was many of them. There was dozens of these warriors. So you're back at Chief Blackfish's camp is what you're talking about with all these young warriors. Well, it's not a camp, but when I, that would be, you're correct. That would be the first time I would meet Blackfish, Chungoa the warrior of the Shawnee Nation, because when I would get back to the camp with these four young warriors that have captured me, we would sit in negotiation, and I would plead with him to spare the lives of all my men that I negotiated with. And if there was one subject matter that I want to clear the, the truth from gossip and campfire talk, talk, if you will, and stories, is that I knew that the fort had become somewhat in ill repair and there was that we death would be imminent upon my women and children and the people that were had were there at Fort Boonesboro and that I sit with Blackfish that night and um negotiated with him through a uh, a free man by the name of Pompey that was a slave that spoke the English language and would interpret in Shawnee that if I surrendered all my men and, and that we would come back during the spring or summer months and I would surrender Fort Boonesboro to him. But my thinking was, Mr. Dean, all in a while, was that if he attacked the fort right now, that my wife and my ch children that were there and other families would be massacred. And so I told him if we would get fair treatment, that we would go willingly up north with them to their their hunting camps. And I think I told you this earlier, I didn't understand why they were in our area because it was the winter months. And most of the winter months, the natives stayed up across the Ohio River in their own hunting grounds. But I didn't know about Chief Cornstock and his two children had been murdered. And I didn't know that Blackfish was now the war chief of the Shawnee Nation. And so you remember, Mr. Dean, I was telling you earlier that my men were hungry already. Right. And that... That night, they tormented us. It was cold, and they had stripped me down. That All I had all was a loincloth, a breechcloth. They had took my moccasins. They had took my leather leggings. They took my hunting shirt, and I thought for sure I'd freeze to death that night. And they shot most of our dogs that were with us. They threw the innards of the dogs to us, and some of my men tried to eat some of that meat because they were oh. starving to death. They killed your dogs, and so here you are, stripped naked practically, and then the only food they throw you is your own dogs? They did. And I remember watching some of the men gurgitate this, these dogs, and they were starved to death. And the next morning, we were all tied together, and they wanted us to carry these big kittles that we had been curing salt out of, and we started up north. And, Mr. Dean, I've been cold before in the wilderness, 
But that day and the days that followed, I was marching up towards the Ohio River were the coldest days of my life. And I noticed that the temperatures had dropped so much that I noticed some of the ears of the natives were turning blue in their or lower extremities, if you will, were blue. And I'd seen this before in the woods, that they were there was frostbite sitting in on all of us. And the second night that we stopped in the camp, they and I know you've heard these stories about the gauntlet. You know what the gauntlet is. Yeah, I'd like to hear about this more of them. Well, they lined up a bunch of their young warriors and entertainment to themselves. And I had told the chief through Pompey that interpreted my English language that you had promised that if I surrendered my men and we went peacefully and not attack Boonesboro, that I would surrender my fort in the spring and the, the summer months of the next year, that you would give fair treatment and you would be civilized to my men. And now you line people up for my man to run the gauntlet. And he spoke to me and said that the promise was is that I would give your man free preferential treatment, but I didn't make that promise with you, Boone. And so they they lined up with their switches and their war clubs and their tomahawks, and, and they stripped me down to my breechcloth and no moccasins on, and I ran through between them as they whipped me and lashed me and stroked me with their war clubs, and they laughed. They were amused. Well, enough of that. That's a humiliating story for me to tell, but it's the fact of how they treated me and what I went through. But we ended up making it to the the Indian villages up north. When you're talking about this gauntlet, okay, so I'm just picturing like these two lines of men and they've got axes and clubs and switches, which I think are sticks. And what do you do? You have to just walk down the row and they beat you or do you fight them or what does that look like? Well, you yeah, all the above. What I chose to do is I would run from side to side and I ran fast. I didn't walk. And I would bang into them. And as I would knock them on their backside, if you will, they would laugh. They found it humorous. <laughs> and the thing about it was, is on this day that I'm speaking of, I, other than a couple of small gashes that didn't open my flesh, I came through that gauntlet that day somewhat not hurt, seriously. And uh, so I would end up living with them. And this is where... My story becomes so controversial. I would live with them. And I had great favor with the war chief Blackfish, and he would end up adopting me as his son. It seems like such a, like, first they capture you, and then they make you run this gauntlet. It doesn't seem like they're being very nice to you or your people. And then all of a sudden, he, you gained favor of Chief Blackfish. Was it because of the way you fought through the gauntlet, or why does he suddenly approve of you? Well, I think the question is more to yourself and interpretation that you said yourself earlier when we began to talk. That there was many books written about me, and mm -hmm. Blackfish would know, he would know of me. When they captured me that day, they called me Boone. They knew who I was. They knew that I was the one, the great white one that had established this fort on the western frontier. I see. And I don't like using the word famous, but I had become very popular with these people. How does this guy survive everything? He makes a decision to explore the warrior's path, a place where no white man has ever survived and somehow ends up building a civilization that thrives despite having enemies on all sides. He gets captured by natives, but 
Instead of killing him, they adopt him and even make him the chief's son. Daniel Boone was a survivor in all situations. In the next episode, you're going to hear about his escape from his adopted Indian father, Blackfish. You're going to hear how he traveled 167 miles to escape until his feet were raw. And you're going to hear about the absurdity of him being called a traitor when he returned to Boonesboro after sacrificing so much for his community. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Daniel Boone. If you haven't subscribed, do it now. And we'll see you at the next episode of the Calling History Podcast. 